Welcome to the July 19th edition of Eye on the Triangle, the news features program of WKNT 88.1 Raleigh. Of the countless hours of music the station broadcasts onto the airwaves, we will deliver the news content that you might be pressed to find from other media and fora right now. If you consider yourself a citizen of the Triangle, then stay tuned. I'm your host, Mark Herring, and I would like to start off with a feature on experiments designed in North Carolina that accompanied Shuttle Atlantis on its last flight. Correspondent Chris Chaffee will then, will then tell a story of the destruction of NC State Bookstore and the public outcry against its demolition. After that, I spoke with Ben Quigley, a senior in biology, who was caught between the crossfire in a protest while on vacation in Malaysia. But before we get to our stories, I just want to announce some breaking news. There is a fire out on Avent Ferry, uh, or Gorman Crossing Apartments. The road Avent Ferry will be closed between Gorman Street and Trailwood until later announced. I will uh, get some more on that as the news develops. But here's NASA. Space Shuttle Atlantis wasn't just carrying its astronaut crew on its last flight to the International Space Station July 8th. It was also carrying experiments designed here in North Carolina. I spoke with UNC Assistant Professor in Biomedical Engineering, Ted Bateman. So my name is uh, Ted Bateman. To talk about a group of mice he sent to the International Space Station and his studies on the effects of zero gravity on bone density. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Dr. Bateman, are you in Florida right now? I'm in Florida right now. We just got back uh, yesterday. Okay, so um, what are you doing in Florida right now? So we've got um, three mice up on the space shuttle uh, right now. They launched on uh, July 8th. They launched on time on July 8th. And we are getting ready for landing and tissue collections, which should happen on Thursday. Okay. Uh, and so now your mice that are up in uh, the International Space Station, are they returning uh, when the shuttle comes back? Yes, so they're returning Thursday with the uh, shuttle. So the last shuttle landing, they'll be, uh, they'll be here. Okay. And could you explain some of the procedures that these mice have been going through? So we selected 30 mice for flight. Um, based on their body weight and their bone density scan. And when they return, we'll uh, recollect their bone density scan and, 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 and uh, see how much that has changed. So that's, that's the first data we will get back. Um, half the mice were injected with a, uh experimental osteoporosis drug um, that we hope will, per- will reverse the bone loss that we expect to see in spaceflight. And the other half of the mice were injected with a... Um, placebo okay. um and and up in space there's not much going on other than they can eat and drink normally and the astronauts look at them every day but um, the astronauts aren't handling the mice um, um while in space they're just uh, peeking out on them okay and so now the research is mainly to focus and hone in on perhaps a is it a protein or um an enzyme or a gene uh that controls bone density Okay. So, um, I mean, during normal everyday life here, we've got cells within our bones called osteocytes that sense um, the stresses and strains caused by walking or even sitting uh, that gravity causes. Yeah. And, and so when um, the gravity is removed, those stresses and strains no longer exist, and we expect that these osteocyte cells make more of this protein called sclerostin. And the drug we're testing is actually an antibody um, that will block these higher levels of sclerostin, and we expect that 
will allow um, new bone new bone to be formed. Okay, and now once the the mice come back, what are the implications of this research, and uh, where would you like to see things uh, going? I I don't know if sure. you're a mice a mouse expert and you want to keep it to mice, or if you want to uh, perhaps put it to humans. Um, so, so Amgen is the biotechnology company that's developing developing the sclerostin antibody, and they've already got a, a different form of it in um, phase two um, clinical trials. So, so this is a drug that is being developed to help patients with osteoporosis here on Earth. Um, and what we're doing with the mice in space, and what's really interesting about astronauts flying in space, is that they lose bone at a very rapid rate compared to. Um, say, osteoporosis patients um, here on Earth, about at, at least five times greater than what postmenopausal women experience. Um, so spaceflight is a really nice model for accelerated aging. I mean, not, not just for osteoporosis, but for muscle atrophy, um, cardiovascular deconditioning, yeah, due to and lack any of, other biomedical problems. Okay, due to lack of uh, the stress of gravity. Yeah, due to removing the stresses and strains that are caused by gravity. Okay. Um, what is the importance and influence of gravity on life? Gravity has dominated life ever since it began and, and every step through evolution. So, so we've got many, many environmental changes that have helped, uh, that, that have happened um, as life has evolved on Earth, but gravity or one gravity um, has been a constant. So... Sending humans into space is, is really the only way to expose them to um, zero gravity for periods. I mean, for, for, for extended periods of time, um, um, we can we can fly airplanes in a way that they can expose astronauts to 20 seconds of, of, of microgravity at a time. But um, for long-term exposure to microgravity, the only way to do that is to send um, astronauts into space. And I mean, it's it's a really fundamentally interesting and important question. I mean, what happens to life when you remove gravity? Exactly. When you were first starting off with this research, uh, trying to find the effects of sclerostin, um, when you were trying to see whether or not this would affect bone density, um, was going into space the the first idea that came to mind? Um, I I don't know about that. Um, I mean, people have been studying sclerostin for a while. Um, I mean, mean, several years. It's a relatively new protein, but it's been studied for several years. Um, I mean, we've done this before. I mean, the first time I did this was back in 1996. So this is my fourth space shuttle flight flying mice and rats. And each time we've tested different drugs, Um, generally osteoporosis drugs or muscle atrophy drugs. Um, So so, um, I I guess it's it's the NASA side that, that came first. And then um, let, let's test this new drug to see if um, um, if, it, if it can prevent the, the bone loss that spaceflight causes. Okay, and um, coming back on just the ramifications of being in an environment with microgravity, a very tiny amount of gravity coming back to Earth, what are certain experiences that... Uh, astronauts and uh, these lab mice, what will they feel? Um, I mean, they're certainly going to feel heavy. I mean, they, they both, I mean, astronauts and the mice move slowly. Um, um, I mean, not, not, not only, I mean, there's a body not used to withstanding gravity or, or, or just their body weight, but 
um, their their neurovestibular system changes as well, so they can they can feel dizzy um, or even a little sick um, when coming back to Earth. Um, so they've got to get their eyes and their ears, and, and then they're I mean we're working together again. With the space shuttle program ending, uh, and you said this was your fourth time uh, yeah. sending experiments up to the International Space Station. What yep. are the other recourses that you're looking towards? Um, so we're collaborating with a group at University of Colorado who regularly flies experiments in space. And so the, these next generation of commercial rockets, I mean, for example, the Falcon 9 rocket being developed by SpaceX, it's going to have a the Dragon capsule um, dock with Space Station. So, so experiments will, will continue to go up to Space Station when, when um, Dragon starts flying a year from now. Um, so, so experiments will still go up to Space Station. It will probably be several years before we get to fly um, mice again, but, but research will continue on Space Station with these unmanned capsules. Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Bateman, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Major changes are happening right now on Central Campus at NC State. Cates Avenue is close to through traffic, and the lawn in between Turlington and Alexander is now a large crater. The whole tally site is abuzz with construction workers and demolition equipment. The construction of a new student center has begun. Jennifer Gilmore of Campus Enterprises says they've already made progress on the site. We've already taken down the bookstore and relocated the bookstore operation over to Harrelson Hall, and we've had to take out some trees Um, But it's going to become a great lawn. Ms. Gilmore says that some of the biggest problems with the student center were ones that students didn't normally see. The plumbing is rotted. There's asbestos in the building. There's no sprinkler system in the building. The air conditioning system's worn out. And that's just a few of the issues that Facilities is dealing with. Clearly, it's time for a new bookstore and student center. But some people weren't as excited about the old buildings being torn down. John Morris of the local architecture blog, Goodnight Raleigh, started a campaign to try and make people aware of the bookstore's impending doom. The point with the bookstore was to draw awareness to it because so many of these buildings are going to be destroyed within the next few years. Uh, there's a few that have already happened. There's a few coming up. Uh, there's a couple, There's at least three in Cameron Village that uh, are endangered. Two of them will probably be torn down this year. And so we really want to just uh, draw awareness to this and let people know of their importance. In John's eyes, the bookstore is unique. It's a key link to Raleigh's architectural past. Uh, there's, a, there's a real legacy with a specific type of architecture, usually referred to as modernist. And this style of architecture was first brought to the area with the creation of the School of Design in 1948. Henry Camp Hefner, the first dean, brought several practicing architects of this new style that began to emerge in the 1940s. And he encouraged these uh, NC State professors to build houses and educational buildings and industrial buildings and everything else around town in this new style. So next time you drive by Dorton Arena or the Char Grill on Hillsborough Street, think about the legacy of modernist architecture. Saving every building isn't realistic, but what is worth saving?
if there's a building that's interesting, has history, is unique, adds character to the city, uh, is otherwise, you know, contributes to the culture of a place, then it absolutely should be preserved. For I'm the Triangle, I'm Chris Chaffee. In this next segment, I interviewed Ben Quigley, a student at NC State who was caught up in political protest while on vacation in Malaysia. He wasn't exactly expecting to get swept up from a, from his hostel and into the streets of Kuala Lumpur. But here's the story. I'm here in close production with Ben Quigley, senior in biology and uh, Caldwell Fellow. That program, they have a lot of traveling opportunities um, abroad, and he was fortunate to go to India. All right? Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So what were you doing in India? Well, I was there for two months, and the first month was with the Caldwell program, and we were studying religious diversity. Okay. Um, I've been in the program for four years now and been on... This is my third international trip with them. And so having been on the first two, I decided that I wanted to take charge and um, have a leadership position in one of these trips. And so two years ago when we were in China, a friend of mine and I decided that we would pursue another trip in India two years later. With the Caldwell program, we were in the north. And then after that, I had a month by myself. So I decided to head south um, and ended up in the south in Bangalore, um, uh, and then leaving India on July or June twenty fourth. Okay, and once you left India, you went to Kuala Lumpur. Mm-hmm. I went to Kuala Lumpur, and then capital caught, of Malaysia. Yep, and then almost immediately caught another flight to Singapore, which is just south, a uh, little ways. It's a small island off the peninsular tip of Malaysia, um, and stayed there for four days, and then headed back to Kuala Lumpur and stayed there for five days. Okay, so that final trip to Kuala Lumpur, you encountered um, the third political protest in the past 60 years in the country of Malaysia. This protest had 300,000 people, um, and you were caught in the middle of it. So could you explain what exactly happened? Um, From my perspective, which I guess is a little bit different in the understanding of what happened, Um, From my perspective, we left in the morning because we had heard that there were going to be protests and that basically the city was shut down um, for 24 hours because of them, so there wasn't much else to do that day. Um, So we left the hostel to go and just see what this protest meant, so what a Malaysian protest was, and then ended up being sort of swept up by this group um, who claimed to be walking for democracy and followed them and ended up staying with them for about five hours as they walked through the city to the center, um, as they were sort of corralled by the police. Um, But, yeah. Now, Malaysia, they've been... um, The the recent protests have been in the name of clean government and uh, transparency. What was this experience like compared to your exposure to Malaysian politics, but also... Just um, being American, you know, you don't, we don't really, we're not confronted with this all the time. Um, and here you are, just outside of your hostel, people are sweeping you off the streets to join them. Yeah, um, we certainly have protests here in the U.S., but they're for different reasons and they end up being played out in a completely different way. And it might have to do with our experience with them um, and maybe a feeling that, for a protest to have any strong effect, it has to 
be taken to the next level. Um, but for the Malaysians, it wasn't like that at all because they didn't have very much experience with it. It was a very honest way for them to get out in a group and say that this is how we feel about this. And really the only thing speaking for them was their numbers. Um, we can have smaller protests here in the U.S. that end up being much more newsworthy because of what goes on, but for the Malaysians it was just sheer numbers. That was what was um, their whole purpose for doing that and their whole voice in doing that. And you said that they're doing these for clean government, so they the practice was to have a clean protest without um, the characteristic riots that ensue afterwards. Uh, what was that like? Um, yeah, it was, it was very, very different. Uh, I've certainly seen protests here in the U.S. that have turned ugly and had a friend live in Pittsburgh. Um, she was there a few years ago when they had the G20 protests that turned into riots. So I was almost expecting for them to turn ugly, especially with that many people, but they didn't. Um, so it was really what protests are supposed to be. And there's discussion afterwards, and we'd always have to correct ourselves if we ever used the word riot. Um, because we realized that definitely wasn't what it was. And so the only belligerents within this this issue were the police, and they started they started firing canisters of tear gas into the crowds to disperse. But you were caught in the crossfire. Yeah, um, certainly uh, tear gas doesn't discriminate whether you're protesting the government or just there to take pictures of it. Um, it doesn't even discriminate whether or not you're a protester or a police officer unless you have a gas mask. But that was um, certainly interesting to see. Did you did you even expect that something like that would happen on that day? No, I don't think I did. Um, I think I expected the police to be there more for presence and more to just be roadblocks in certain areas. Like when we left our hostel and walked out um, just down the street, there were police officers in a group um, sort of staggered so that they would take up the whole street and they were staying there with guns but I guess you see police officers with guns often enough to just expect it to be part of their ensemble so yeah um, now was this the first time in Malaysian uh, or in modern Malaysian history in which the the police have pursued the crowd with with arms that's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that. I know that the most recent protest, which was in 2007, was uh, much smaller than that. Okay. And um, what was that experience like with tear gas? Terrible. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. Um, and I was a lot like the Malaysians in that I didn't know what you were supposed to do to combat that. I've recently been told that you're supposed to have your bandana covered in... Um, uh, vinegar, like white vinegar. Um, but I had no idea, and they had no idea. So we were all in the same boat, like tear gas having its full effect on you. And when is that full effect? Um, it's really bad. So I think it's primarily an upper respiratory thing. Um, makes it really hard to breathe, makes you sort of heave. Um, and then obviously it's tear gas, so it affects your eyes. It has this really weird effect where it makes you blink. Um, it's just almost not possible to keep your eyes open. And then it makes your skin sort of burn, especially if you're sweating, which everyone does in Kuala Lumpur. It's a very hot climate. Yeah, yeah, very humid. Um, 
so all those things together make it very difficult. And then at the same time, if you've just gotten that big a whiff of it, you're probably running from it because there's an even bigger cloud of it behind you. Yeah. So you're trying to do all those things and run at the same time. Now, what were your Malaysian peers saying about this protest? Just very, very mixed response um, in talking to people there at the protest and then in talking to people at our hostel who were Malay. Um, the people at the protest were obviously in support of it, um, in support of it in the really honest, uh, clean government way. Um, but the hostel is very different. Uh, they were very negative about it, um, saying that it won't actually change anything, which is quite likely, I guess, just in seeing how little has changed in the last 60 years. Um, but it's a very mixed response. I wish I'd been able to talk to more people about it. So they were impassioned yet apathetic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what lessons have you learned from this that you think you can what, – what have you learned from this that you'll apply to your life here stateside? I, this is a you – know, this isn't something you encounter every vacation. Right. Um, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, it would have to be something about – and I might not have had enough time to reflect on it, but it would have to be something about um, sort of universal communication in a situation – in which you're a minority, like big time. So I didn't speak the language there, but there are other ways to communicate. Um, and I hopefully was able to capture that in photography, seeing um, body language and facial expressions. But maybe the lesson that I'll bring back is to sort of reevaluate that um, and think more about it in daily life and daily communication. Thank you so much for coming over. Uh, really interesting story. Absolutely, my pleasure. WKNC 88.1, you are listening to Eye on the Triangle. I'm Chris Chaffee, your Assistant Public Affairs Director, and now we have a story by Mike Jones, not the rapper, about soccer. I'm here with Mike Jones. Uh, he is our Daytime Music Director. That's right, and I'm also a massive soccer fan. Yes. Or as I like to call it, football, which is pretty much what everybody else calls it. Futbolista. But besides being a kind of a pretentious soccer fan... Um, of course, the big news of the past week, which got lots of people tweeting and lots of people talking and actually paying attention to the sport, was, of course, the Women's World Cup. That's right. The final, Japan versus the United States. And it was set up to be a fantastic match from the very beginning. Two different teams with two completely different styles. How does that work? It Well, it creates a really dynamic kind of way that the teams have to do adjust to one another, um, especially when you get into these set pieces. So uh, Japan is you know, a smaller team. They're lightning fast. They're incredibly precise with their ball control and their ability to pass it in gaps. And it was really the, I, I guess, the strategy of the American team to intercept, to get in their face as much as they could. And you would see that a lot during the game. Yeah, so the Japanese, they were very agile, a lot of foot speed, but the Americans, they, they just had sheer power. Yeah, power, and they had height, which was incredibly important, uh, once again, on those set pieces. So when they when they get corner kicks and are trying to knock it in... That's how we got a goal. And, and yeah, that actually turned out to be a, a quite a pivotal movement in the game. Although it wasn't the deciding moment, which it could have very well been, mm-hmm. it wasn't the pivotal moment. So what you do is you have this, and I, th- I think the commentator at the time put it really well, it's steel versus silk type of play. Yeah. 
And um, that that was incredibly compelling, just trying to watch how each team adjusted. And I think that was ultimately why it went into um, penalty kicks and why they had that shootout at the very end. Um, and it's because every time that the Americans would go up a goal, they started to play back on the Japanese. Um, and, and that's a terrible idea. Because uh, what you do is you increase your strength in the midfield, mm-hmm. so you allow them to attack to attack you more. You don't necessarily are trying to score more and more goals. And so what you would see is when the Japanese would get the ball on the counterattack uh, after a goal would be scored, the Americans would start playing back. And when you do that, you pretty much allow the Japanese to pick you apart. And that's exactly what they did, and they would sneak a couple goals in. Yeah, it was a, a thrilling game and um, really a, a memorable, a memorable game too. Uh, and honestly, I would have preferred an American win, but I think the Japanese they they deserve it and they need it. Absolutely. Well, it it was really that's I watched lots of soccer. Um, I follow entire the entire English Premier League season mm-hmm. and uh, you know a lot of the other majors. So the La Liga and Serie A. So I follow all of that. And that is easily one of the best games I've ever seen. Wow. Well, um, what's the next game to come? Uh, you know, this kind of got Americans excited about soccer once again. Is there anything uh, people should kind of tune in to check out? I think the one thing that might start catching people's attention um, is they have this World Cup challenge. Or I don't know if it's the World Cup challenge, but it's an international Friendly matches being played between the greatest teams in the world and um, a lot of MLS teams. So, for instance, Monday the 18th had Manchester City go against uh, Vancouver and uh, was a really interesting game at that matter. Yeah, but um, actually pretty soon there will be matches in Raleigh, correct? Yeah, that's right. So, Juventus, which is one of the most famous um, Italian soccer teams in the world, is actually going to be coming to Raleigh to play against FC Guadalajara, which is in the top league of Mexican soccer. And that will be in the RBC Center? No, that's Carter-Finley. Carter-Finley. So, football field turned soccer field. Yeah. Or football field turned football field. If you'd like. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. And now I'm here in the studio joined by David Church. Now, David, he will be featured in our next story actually about hurricane season, but he is also a soccer fan and he has a little recap about soccer season. So what's going on or what, what was going on? Uh, well, uh, just here to talk a little bit about the, uh, the women's world cup that finished up on Sunday. And we just heard a piece on that, but I was going to go through and actually talk a little more about the breakdown of the games and, uh, what a remarkable team we really had, uh, this, this, for this world cup, uh, tournament. And, uh, you know, they, this women's team had, you know, very high expectations, uh, on par with, uh, the 1999 championship team. So really had a lot to look forward to. And, uh, you know, they started out very strong. They cruised past South Korea and, uh, Columbia in pool play, uh, blowing them out two nothing and three nothing in both of those games. And, uh, they actually had a minor setback against a strong Swedish team that wasn't really expected. They were also favored in that. But they, uh, you know, they actually were able to, to secure a two and one record in pool, pro- pool play. And that was enough to, advanced them to the quarterfinals match against Brazil. And uh, that quarterfinals match against Brazil was probably easily one of the best soccer games I'd ever seen. Uh, the U.S. came out really strong and actually scored two minutes into the game off a deflection uh, on a Brazilian defender. And uh, the rest of the game, they had a lot of, a lot of close chances, uh, bounced a couple off the crossbar, 
and uh you know we're getting a lot of good chances there and uh not much else happened really in the uh in the first half we got to the second half and there was a big controversial call that happened where uh marta from brazil was coming down on an attack she got into the uh, penalty box there and one of the u.s defenders rachel bueller uh it appeared to the ref at least that she took her out so uh, the ref had to issue a red card and ejected her from the game, so that brought us down to 10 men on the field at that point, and uh, Marta actually got a penalty shot against the U.S. team. So uh, at this point, you know, the U.S. is up one to nothing, and on the uh, first penalty attempt, uh, our great U.S. goalie, Hope Solo, actually was able to stop the first penalty kick, but then, you know, so we were all, everybody was up cheering and yelling and excited that, uh, you know, the U.S. was able to, to stop this, uh, this first attempt. And then the ref made another controversial call right after that where she said that one of the U.S. players actually entered the penalty block box just prior to Brazil taking the penalty shot. And uh, when this happened, so when this happened, when she called this penalty, uh, basically meant Brazil got to do uh, another, take another shot and it just voided out the first penalty shot. So, of course, they scored on the second one, got them back into the game, tied it up one-to-one, and uh, the rest of the game went on and this was, uh, you know, they ended up going into overtime. And uh, just a couple minutes into overtime, Marta, again, on, from Brazil, she came down and, and scored early on in the overtime period. And so this is really a big shift in momentum. The U.S. had momentum the whole way through the game. And, uh, you know, so th- this is a, you know, quite a big turn of events here. Uh, and so then uh, the, uh, the U.S. basically, you know, were still playing down a man, remember, in overtime. And this is, they, you know, they really started feeling that urgency after they went down 2-1. to one. And so they were actually able to, to come back. Uh, down the field, they were in the 122nd minute, and remind you, this is actually in stoppage time at this point, uh, with only probably less than 60 seconds left in the game. And uh, Megan Rapino, one of the the wide uh, the the left wingers for the U.S. team, uh, she kicked just a perfect ball to Abby Wambach, one of our top players, and uh, she was able to head it into the back of the net, and uh, that tied the game up, forced it to go to penalty kicks, and then. Uh, and the penalty kicks, the U.S. was just stellar. They knocked away all five of our, we knocked away all five of our penalty shots. And our goalie, Hope Solo, came up with a, a big save, uh, to, to let the U.S. win 5-3 on penalty shots. And that advanced us to the semifinal round against France, which, uh, that, that game was another fantastic game. The U.S. came out strong again. Uh, that, that was sort of the main feature of the, this team. They always came out strong, no matter, uh, how strong or, or, or how close the previous game was. Uh, and that, that match was another hard-fought one. The U.S. came out strong again, scored early. Uh, but then France crept back into the game uh, in the second half, uh, just 10 minutes into the second half. But uh, the U.S. just willed their way through it again, uh, even after that minor setback. And they ended up uh, scoring with just 11 minutes remaining. Another goal from Abby Wambach, who was just on an incredible streak during this uh, whole World Series, or during this whole uh, World Cup. And then... Uh, with just three minutes after she scored that one, the U.S. scored again. So they really broke it open at that point and started putting the game away. So uh, another fantastic game, very exciting soccer. The whole the whole game was very fast paced and uh, extremely exciting. So that uh, that was another huge win that sent uh, the United States to the first World Cup uh, final since the '99 team. And so at this point, you know everybody's getting really excited. The U.S. is really favored, and going into the finals game, they're playing Japan, which. Uh, plays a very different style of soccer than the U.S. does. Uh, the U.S. plays a very hard, ta- hard attacking, uh, very strong-willed type game. While Japan plays uh, very patient with a lot of ball control, and so you know the U.S. is very exciting to watch. While Japan will kind of lull you to sleep while you're uh, trying to defend them, and then 
all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, they, you see them just kind of sneak in when you're when they catch you off guard, and uh, that, that's sort of how this game went. You know, the U.S. came out strong. They had fantastic chances in the first half. Uh, there was at least three that should have been goals that were very close. Bounced off the uh, bounced off the crossbar, bounced off one of the posts. Uh, a couple great saves by the uh, Japanese goaltender. The, the U.S. was just throwing everything we had at them, and. Uh, you know, unfortunately, just couldn't get any of those to go. If we had just gotten a couple of them to go, that might have been the whole game. Uh, but it ended up being there was no scoring until 69 minutes uh, into the game. Uh, it took until the second half when Alex Morgan uh, broke through with her second goal in two games. And uh, all we had to do at that point was just hold it out for the rest of the game. But then the U.S. defense broke down just nine minutes left in the game. And uh, with a surprising goal from Japan, tied it up. Uh, sort of had that. Uh, similar feel almost from the Brazil game when the U.S. had to come back late and tie things up, and so that, that sent it back and that sent it to overtime, and the U.S. scored a goal with about one minute left in the first half of overtime since they played two 15-minute halves, and uh, then you know at that point it was just a matter of the U.S. just had to hold things out, uh, get through the last part of the game, uh, just play good defense and control the ball, and for the most part they were able to do that and they were kept sort of Japan on their heels, but. Uh, you know, Japan was a very determined team, even though they played quite a different style. And uh, they were actually able to come down and score with just three minutes remaining in overtime. Very dramatic fashion, very crushing goal. Uh, so it sent us to penalty kicks for the, the very final of the game. And it was uh, quite a way to, to end it because the U.S. had already had to do a penalty kick out uh, for, to, to wrap up a game. So Japan had already seen all of our penalty uh, shooters at that point. And so it sort of put the U.S. at a disadvantage in the penalty shootout. And so, uh, you know, Brazil ended up scoring 3-1 uh, to one on the penalty kicks. The U.S. missed the first three penalty kicks. And, uh, you know, J- Japanese uh, goalie camp with some great saves. So, uh, you know, in the end, it was an incredible soccer game, uh, a lot of back and forth. Uh, it was very, very surprising. Two different, two very different style teams battling it out. Uh, both had a lot of heart. Uh, so... You know, in the end, you know, this U.S. team, you know, even though it was a disappointing uh, to not come back with the World Cup, they certainly uh, went over there and, and showed what they had. And uh, the other nice thing is, you know, we actually can look forward to watching them again uh, in the Olympics. The next year, a lot of the same players will be back for that. And so, uh, you know, it, it'll be exciting to watch. That They definitely play a very exciting brand of hockey and a, a very exciting brand that uh, I think Americans can really get behind. Okay. What did I say, hockey? Yeah. I think oh, so. yeah, soccer. Well, yes. <laughs> no worries about that. It's kind of crazy thinking that the Olympics are around the corner. But uh, thank you, David. Um, Thanks. And now we have a little feature with our meteorologist, Katie Costa, and David. So here it goes. I'm meteorologist Katie Costa with a look at your 2011 hurricane season outlook. Now, according to National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA's 2011 Atlantic Hurricane Season Outlook, which is produced by the Climate Prediction Center, they're calling for an above-normal Atlantic hurricane season. Now, the peak months of hurricane season are August to October, and already we have had Tropical Storm Arlene and currently have Tropical Storm Brett in the works just north of the Bahamas. And lined up, we have the following storm names for this hurricane season. Cindy, Dawn... Emily, Franklin, Gert, Harvey, Irene, Jose, Katia, Lee, Maria, Nate, Ophelia, Philippe, Rena, Sean, Tammy, and Vince. And finally, Whitney. Now, the 2011 Atlantic hurricane season outlook is mostly based on the following conditions within the peak months. 
the absence of El Nino or La Nina, greater sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic, and we expect to see a continuing trend of above average number of hurricanes that we have seen over the past decade. Now, on average per season, the National Hurricane Center estimates 11 named storms, six of which are hurricanes and two of which are major hurricanes. But for this season, we have anywhere between 12 and 18 named storms we are expecting, six to 10, which are hurricanes, and three to six, which could be major hurricanes. Now, I am joined in the studio with fellow meteorologist David Church, who specializes in tropical meteorology research. Hey, David, how are you doing? Hey, good. Thanks for having me, Katie. Uh, Well, David, it seems like we haven't seen many storms yet this hurricane season. Do you expect that we are still on track for an above-average season? Well, absolutely. Uh, We're still seeing above-average sea surface temperatures out in the Atlantic right now. We're still running uh, 2 to 3 degrees Celsius above average for this time of year. Uh, Also, we're in between El Nino and La Nina. And uh, typically, if we're in an El Nino phase, uh, it increases the wind shear over the Atlantic, which is bad for hurricanes. So we're, we're in the good on that as well. And uh, also, we're on track with climatology for this time of year, actually. Uh, we wouldn't expect to see any more than one to two storms so far. And uh, as you know, we already are on our second storm. So uh, really, we're on pace with climatology. And uh, we expect that the August and September months are going to be the most active anyway. And uh, that's also when the greatest threat to the Carolinas comes about. All right, and also, we have Tropical Storm Brett just off the Florida coast, which developed recently into a tropical storm Sunday evening. Now, do you think this storm will track to the Carolinas and bring us much-needed rain? Uh, well, Katie, it looks like Brett should not be much of a threat to land. Uh, the, the National Hurricane Center is forecasting Brett to stay offshore, and that's uh, thanks to this uh, high-pressure system we have building in from the west that's going to bring us a nice heat wave this coming week. And uh, as Brett moves up the coast offshore, eventually it's going to get caught up in those faster westerly winds and get pushed away from the coast. So unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're going to get much rain out of it at all. Okay, well, overall, do you have any final thoughts on this hurricane season? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to you know, mention that the outlook is a great tool for bringing attention to hurricane season in general. But you know, just remember, uh, even if there was a below normal year forecasted, it only takes one hurricane making landfall for it to be a really bad year. So now's really a great time to start thinking about your hurricane preparedness plans and, and to start putting your, your uh, plans into action by getting supplies, things like that. Well, thank you so much, um, David. Well, as David mentioned, it is definitely important to be prepared, and now is the perfect time to be putting together a hurricane emergency kit. David, thanks again so much for joining us in the studio today. Uh, thanks for having me, Katie. That's your 2011 Atlantic hurricane season outlook. And from Eye on the Triangle, I'm Katie Costa. I'm here in the studio with Katie Costa. Now she's going to give you the forecast going on right now. Well, Mark, today was certainly a hot and humid day across the Triangle, but tonight we do have a slight chance of storms, but fortunately we'll be seeing some relief as we cool down to a pleasant 72 degrees. Now a heat advisory has been issued from noon to 9 p.m. Wednesday across the Triangle. High temperatures combined with the high humidity factor will cause heat index values to rise up to anywhere between 105 and 108 degrees. So avoid prolonged exposure to outside activity tomorrow and any kind of outdoor strenuous activity, especially in the afternoon, since both could lead to serious heat-related illnesses. Also, a code orange air quality alert has been issued for the triangle tomorrow as well, which is in effect from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. tomorrow. So if you have respiratory problems, it is especially crucial to limit prolonged outdoor activity. So overall, expect actual temperatures to get up to around 97 degrees tomorrow with heat index values around 105 with a chance of afternoon pop-up storms. Now, Wednesday night, temperatures will cool down to 73 degrees and there is a chance of thunderstorms early in the evening, but these should taper off by around 10 p.m.
Now, hot conditions are in store for us once again on Thursday and Friday as actual temperatures peak into the triple digits. Expect a high of 100 degrees on Thursday and 102 degrees on Friday. Thursday and Friday nights, we will be cooler, however, with uh, around 77 degree temperatures and partly cloudy skies. Now, unfortunately, this hot trend still continues into the weekend since we will be seeing temperatures nearing 100 on Saturday and staying in the upper 90s on Sunday. So overall hot and this weekend, Saturday and Sunday nights, we will be cooler, however, in the upper to mid 70s and we will be seeing partly cloudy skies in the evening. But, Mark, overall, it looks like we are going to be seeing a hot trend over the next five days as higher temperatures and humidity values make their way into the triangle. I don't know about you, but I am going to try and hit the pool or stay inside and enjoy air conditioning buildings as much as possible for the rest of this week and stay cool. Yeah, that's nice uh, for all the students out there. Stay on campus. The the buildings are always cold. Okay, so thank you very much, Katie. (laughs) You're welcome. Now I'm here with Corey Smith, sports editor of Technician. And uh, we heard a little bit or quite a bit about the World Cup, but he has some more news, more pertinent to NC State. So what's going on? Uh, Today there was a big press conference with Mark Gottfried, our new uh, men's basketball head coach. He mentioned a lot of different things about the team as a whole. One thing that he was speaking a lot about was the fact that they had a long way to go. Obviously last season didn't quite go so well for a lot of NC State fans that were watching But one thing that he mentioned at the very end was that he doesn't have any, with his his hand motions and and all, he didn't have any magic dust for NC State coming up this season and for the players to make them magically just become this amazing team in the ACC. And he also mentioned a lot of things about uh, a guy named uh, Richard Howell, who a lot of NC State fans might know. And during the offseason, when he first came in to weigh himself out, he was about 271 pounds. And he said that he dropped down to around 250. So the guy's lost 20 pounds in the offseason, and he's basically said that he changed his entire game during the offseason. So. All right. So overall, I'm just trying to, to think about this. Like, Do you think it's pessimistic, optimistic? Uh, what are your feelings? Well, one of the big things, obviously, and one of the things that he also mentioned was we do have a lot of key players that can play key roles. Guys like C.J. Williams, C.J. Leslie, uh, Lorenzo Brown, and then you look at some of the guys that are coming in. Uh, like a guy who's coming in is from California, Bakersfield. They were a lot of those players have that are be, that are coming in are going to end up being good players as well you got a guy who has already graduated. Uh, his name is Alex Johnson, and he's going to be coming in and being kind of that second point guard with Lorenzo Brown. And to look at things, it looks like the season might end up going favorably, favorably in our way. It's not going to be a season where we're going to say we've obviously beat, you know, where we can beat somebody like UNC or Duke. They, the possibility is always there, but it's not going to end up being one of the seasons where we're going to be a powerhouse just yet. He said basically give it a few more seasons. Okay, and um, now that's basketball. We still have a little bit of time for basketball. Uh, Obviously, the team will have to develop. But right now, uh, what's going on with baseball? Well, over the summer, a lot of players, when they exit NC State, they end up going to play wood bat leagues over in places all over the coast. Uh, One of the big ones is the Cape Cod League. Uh, And one of our guys, Chris Overman, is actually down there. 
He was a big uh, late-inning reliever for the pack in the spring. And so far in the Cape Cod League, which is typically compared to single-A or double-A in the farm leagues and professional baseball, so basically you know all the players down there are really, really good players, he has not allowed an earned run in any of his appearances. He said he's had about 15 appearances and over 20 innings so far. So to not earn, to not allow a single earned run is pretty remarkable. And another guy that's down that's actually participating in the Coastal Plain League right now, his name is Ryan Matthews. Now, not a lot of people will know about Ryan Matthews because he didn't get to play a lot this past season with a lot of other players starting in his position. And he's actually gone down there and... Uh, he became, like I said, he became an all-star for that league, and he just participated in that just recently. And he was also entered into the Home Run Derby, which a lot of people might have seen the MLB Home Run Derby here recently. And he actually placed third in the competition with eight home runs. So didn't hit a massive amount of home runs, but he ended up placing third out of eight different participants. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. And yeah. how does that actually work out with uh, collegiate athletes who are also – you know, dabbling in the minor leagues and that sort of stuff. Are they allowed to come back on? Are well, it's those- not. That's not technically minor league. It's uh, it is sponsored by some teams. Like there's the you know the Rockies have it their own team and stuff like that. And it basically gives them a chance to send scouts out and see some of the best players playing against the best players. That's the big reason for it. And it's also a wood bat league. So this isn't swinging aluminum bats like they do in college. That's one of the big reasons why these guys go and play in these leagues is so that they can play against the best and play like they're going to in professional baseball. And that's so. really interesting. It's a, it's a sport where you really do just need to keep on competing and competing to really gain the experiment. Exactly. The experience. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. uh, what else is going on? Well, basically, that's just about all that's going on right now. Obviously, there's been a few, uh, like I've been looking at football the last few times that I've been on, and coming up this weekend is actually the ACC football kickoff down in Pinehurst, there's going to be a big uh, golf tournament between the coaches and some of the media members and people like that. But one of the big things that's going to be coming out is you're going to see the first uh, actual um, quotes from people like Tom O'Brien and people like Audie Cole, I believe, is going down there. And there's one other person that's going down there that I can't remember off the top of my head right now. But Audie Cole will be one of the people. He's going to be a starting middle linebacker for us this coming up season, which is a pretty big deal because a guy like John Tenuta, if anybody knows anything about him, he actually puts his smartest skill player on defense at the middle linebacker position. So you're going you're gonna to see a guy who, coming into a senior season, has completely evolved into a much better player from a guy who was a quarterback in high school to now a starting middle linebacker for a collegiate team. Well, great. I can't uh, wait until football season starts so we can really start talking about it. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you very much, Corey. I appreciate it, man. Testing. 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 Okay, okay, I think we got it. I think, I think the microphone is on. Thank you, Selma. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, so what were you just doing? So this is called beatboxing. All right, and besides beatboxing, what else uh, do you do? Well, uh, my hobby, my eccentric hobby, happens to be spoken word. All right, tell us a little bit about spoken word and uh, what it takes to be a poet and what it might not take. Spoken word is basically 
expressing your emotions and your thoughts in a way that people can listen to and be interested in and in a way that people can relate to you. It's your it's your way out. It's basically a way of letting people know who you are. Uh, I knew a poet who once compared it to being a stripper. He said, three minutes a week, I take off my clothes, my mind, my soul, and let everyone see me naked and see my heart and soul. Well, uh, that's quite the analogy. Now, I wouldn't consider you a stripper. I hope no one else would. Um, yes, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but you do bring up a, a good point where it's a way to express oneself without inhibition. So, um, how now? A lot of people, you know, they throw the the term poet around. What does it really mean to be a poet? To be a poet, I mean, personally, I'm not gonna go around telling people, "Hey, I'm a poet," but. I I mean, being a poet is just putting your thoughts down on paper. You don't even have to say it out loud. Just the fact that you're putting down everything that you want to say, that makes you a poet. If you have something to say to people, that makes you a poet. Okay, cool. So um, let's hear some of your thoughts. Okay. So this uh, poem that I'm about to do is dedicated to spoken word and open mic. And so there's a place called... Flyleaf Books, and it's in Chapel Hill. No, no curses on Chapel Hill. This is all friendly. Yeah, for sure. No, they're our very nice neighbor. And it's run by a poetic organization called Sacrificial Poets. And it's basically a slam team, a youth slam team based out of Chapel Hill. And they throw this open mic every Wednesday, every first Wednesday of the month. So this is dedicated to it. Take your time, take your time. She's getting ready. <laughs> I make this promise, to be defined by these very moments in my life, to never have regrets for the steps it took to become this slightly bizarre creature standing before you. And now, I close my eyes, sink back into the cushion recesses of my mind to be entertained by a lark singing me songs of a future journey, my inner mind, looks nothing like Willy Wonka's factory, no chocolate rivers or Oompa Loompas to drown with, my mind, often vague and ambiguous, looks like a rainy night in the city. Bright lights reflected off the sparkles falling from the sky. In my dreams, I sometimes fly. Fly through vibrant colors of anticipation, hesitation. Those frozen seconds between innocent lips of a first kiss, or better yet, those frozen seconds of mortification before your first spit, heavily breathing into your first mic, every instinct telling you to dip as you look out to see all the greatest writers sit before you, Shakespeare, Miss Austin, Poe, the Brontes. Try imagining them in their underwear, but the brassiers and corsets have definitely thrown off your train of thought. Then, it starts. Words. Naturally falling off your tongue like enchantments, your thoughts, invading the minds of those who listen, I brazenly call it inception, and then you trip, break your own magic as you start to rip through the pages of your diary because your memory slipped the next stanza of your poem, now you start to get sick, your hands are shaking, and the lights swim before your eyes, but that's when you hear it, spit, poet, go in, poet. You take a step back and lick your lips and taste the words there that deem themselves misfit. Breathe your flow back into the souls as you come to admit that you'd rather mess up a hundred times than never have to sit back and listen to the wisdom to wit that every poet here has blessed me with and that's just exactly what it is. Flying. You could say I sprout wings. You could say I sprout wings every first Wednesday of the month and I'm just trying to keep it alive. But sometimes it feels as if my wings have been clipped when my diary gathers dust and my pens have called it quits. So I take most deaf's advice and let the sun renew my wits, but sometimes it doesn't work. 
When my worst nightmares are in my midst, and it's just that reoccurring thought that haunts me, my biggest fear takes his grips and he told me this. Miss Poet, every poem that you've ever written has just been luck, but your luck has finally dried. Every pen that you've ever touched will refuse to write because your malnourished child named writing career has just died. Your wells of creativity and imagination have been polluted by fear and silence. But fear not, because you will not be missed. He whispered this to me, and it brought me to my knees, and I pleaded to God for mercy, and it came in the form of a Wednesday afternoon, with angels in flesh disguises feeding me words sweeter than nectar. They breathed their flow back to my soul as I again came to admit that I'd rather mess up a hundred times than never have sit back and listen to the wisdom to wit that every poet here has blessed me with, and that's when I finally reopened my eyes. Take leave of my inner mind to find most of subliminal lines on my lips. I stretch my arms towards the sky like blades of tall grass. The sun beat between my shoulders like cardinal drums. I sat still in hopes that it would help my wings grow so that I could really be fly. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. So, that poem it was about, it's about performing in front of people and showing them who you are and then someone kind of breaking you down about it, like saying that, you know, it's it's not real? It's basically, um, so when I first started writing, I was just like throwing some words around. I actually first started off with, with rapping. So that's kind of where the beatboxing and everything comes from. So I started off rapping and then I kind of just like stumbled into poetry one day. And I realized, okay, this is this is something I love to do. And so I started doing it. But then as time went on and those months stretched out between the different poems I'd actually read and actually performed, I, I, like, I would get scared. The whole writer's block thing, so that voice in there was basically writer's block telling you, every poem that you've ever written has just been luck. And so I'd get scared. So that poem, I had like I hadn't written anything. Like, probably the, the spaced out time between there was, like, maybe two, three months since I had written. So, I started to get scared. I'm like, oh, my God, maybe I've lost I've lost my talent. So, but then I just, like, just kind of started writing. Yeah, so how do you snap out of it? I slapped myself in the face. <laughs> Come on. Um, you just put pen to paper and just I keep just, on going? Yeah, well, actually, I call myself, like, these days I've been an e-poet, and I've been writing in my phone's notepad. Oh, so. Okay. I'll just start writing, like, basically, it'll start off, oddly enough, it starts off with a Facebook status. I always have these random, like, little Facebook statuses, and that's basically where, where like, the first begin, like, the beginning of the poem came from. Okay. Just, like... So, the ideal snowball afterwards. Yeah, basically, it's just pen rolls afterwards. Now, we have a few updates on the fire uh, at Gorman Crossing Street, or at Gorman Crossing on Gorman Street, so, Chris, what's going on? Well, like you know, Mark, the Avon Ferry Road was closed where this fire was happening. And also, uh, reports are that two cats have been saved from the blaze. So, um, so if you had a cat in that building, um, rest assured that the rescue people have found it and also no one was injured. Wonderful. So Did far, you... so far. Allegedly. Yeah. We don't know that for a fact. Sorry. Well, hopefully, uh, you know, no more bad news will come out of that. This was I in the Triangle on WKNT 88.1. I'm your host and public affairs director, Mark Herring. If you have any questions or concerns, or if you'd like to 
or if you would like to share a compelling narrative or a story with us, you can contact me at publicaffairs at wkmc.org. This show was produced with the help of Chris Chaffee, Selma Abdulhai, Nick Savage, Katie Costa, David Church, Mike Jones, and Corey Smith. You can listen to the show in two weeks and check out our website at wknc.org and you can find Eye on the Triangle on blogs. We also have uh, pages on Facebook and Twitter so you can follow us there. Thank you very much and have a nice evening.